Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Hey guys, before we get started, Jeb and I had a quick favor to ask. The best way for a podcast to grow is through word of mouth. So if you have any friends, family, coworkers, or anyone you know who's looking at buying, selling, or financing a piece of real estate, we would appreciate it if you would share the show through messaging or on social media. It's the best way for us to grow and to achieve our goal of building as many educated home buyers as possible. Again, we appreciate you watching. We appreciate you sharing. Let's get started. In last week's episode, we ended with how to maximize your credit score. And we were actually talking about credit utilization. So Josh, why don't we just go back a little bit here and just recap credit utilization and the importance of credit utilization. And then we'll talk about some other things that you can do to actually help maximize your credit score. Perfect. So credit utilization is the proportion of the potential balance that you use. So if you have a credit card with a $1,000 limit and you have $500 charged on it, you're utilizing 50% of your available credit. So they're going to look at that, the credit bureau and the algorithm for generating your credit score is going to look at every one of your accounts. And it will actually also look at them in aggregate as well, your total available credit and total use credit. But for our purpose, is what we're going to talk about today is how to optimize your credit score by keeping the credit utilization within the ideal range. Right. And are there thresholds in there that are important? I've always heard, Josh, that 30% of your balance, you don't want to spend more than 30% of your balance or keep a balance above 30% for an extended period of time, because that ultimately helps, ultimately hurts your credit score, if you will. So if you have a $10,000 balance, you essentially want to be sitting somewhere around $3,000 of that limit, if you will, when the bureaus actually report. Now, you mentioned something last time that said even less, like that if you can get it even lower than that. So what are those thresholds? Why are they important? I think that's something that a lot of people need to understand. Let's start with what is ideal credit utilization. From the Bureau's perspective, here's a quote from the Senior Director for FICO. It says, consumers with FICO scores of 800 use on average 7% of their available credit. So the ideal range is 1% to 9%. So below 10, but you want to be using your credit. It's very important to note that a lot of people think, hey, I got in trouble with credit in the past. I paid everything off and I don't even use it. Well, the model cannot see how you deal with credit on a month to month basis. So you need to be using them and keeping a balance. And some people say, well, I pay mine off every month. The good news on that is your payment rarely coincides with the cycle of when the creditor reports to the bureaus. So from that perspective, you may pay it off every month, but if you're using it on a regular basis, there's gonna be some balance on there. I get that question all the time. I'm talking to people about getting them pre-approved for a loan and I go, okay, it looks like your credit cards are about $187 total in terms of the minimum payments. They go, oh, no way, I pay them off every month. I go, awesome but it doesn't perfectly coincide with the reporting cycle of when the creditors report to the Bureau. So we're always gonna show some sort of balance and some sort of limit. In a perfect world, we wanna say sub 10%, but have some balance on there so that the model can see you are using your credit effectively. 
No, at the same time, like my balance on my cards due on the tenth of every month, but I'm paying off what's due in that cycle. But I've already charged on the next cycle, so even though I'm paying the balance off, if you will, there's already a new balance on that card because it's already billing into the next cycle. So like Josh said, you're likely going to have something report on your credit report, which in theory is a good thing as long as you're paying it on time and what have you. So the idea of getting a credit card, Josh, and locking it, freezing it, if you will, in your freezer and not, not using it, which I've heard, right? Almost like a Dave Ramsey approach, you know, cut them all up. Isn't ideal? It's, it's not because the model can't see how you're using that credit. A lot of times we'll talk to people who don't have a credit history. So with no score, the only way they can get a credit card is to go out and get a secured card. Even with that, we want to use that. So use it minimally, set it up to pay a couple of your bills, pay your cell phone bill, pay your auto insurance, things that you're going to pay regardless. You don't have to go out and buy new things every month to utilize your credit. You can use the credit cards to pay things that you're going to have to pay every month. Jeb, let's circle back to what you said, 30%. 30% is a great number to shoot for. Like we said, those credit borrowers who have high FICOs, 800 and above, keep it in that one to 9% range. But most people utilize their credit on a higher level than that. So if you keep it under 30%, you're still going to have a very good score. The reason being is the model is looking at it saying, yes, this person uses credit. They are borrowing money, but they're borrowing a relatively small amount to what they could potentially borrow. So sub 30% is ideal if you can't keep it in that one to 9% range. The next threshold is keep it under 50%. We see a fairly significant hit if you get over 50%. The next one would be 70%. You see, again, another hit. And these aren't just true breaks right at 70%. The higher you go, but it does seem to be more significant at 70%, 90%, and then obviously 100%. You guys would be shocked to see a credit report of a borrower who has perfect credit. I've had borrowers that were previously 800 credit score borrowers come back to do a refinance and say they were consolidating debt from having done a big remodel on their house and they've maxed a couple of credit cards and they're actually over limit. I've seen those people in the low 600s having never missed a payment just because they overextended and went beyond the limit on their card. So keep in mind that life happens if you need to borrow, if you have to tap your credit cards. Right now, what we're seeing is consumer credit card balances are higher than they have been in years. Consumers are still spending in the face of high inflation, but they're doing it largely on credit cards versus money out of their bank accounts. If you're in that situation and you have to do it, just be aware of those thresholds and how it's gonna impact your credit score. So ideally one to 9%, next keep it under 30, then keep it under 50, keep it under 70, once you get above 70, it's going to be really, really difficult for you to have a 700 score, especially if that's across multiple cards. Possible yeah, if there's just one, but multiple is going to be really hard. The thing I would add to that, too, is that on a month-to-month -month basis, this isn't something a consumer should be really overly concerned about. It's when you're going to buy something like a house and you're going through the pre-approval process or you've already been through the pre-approval process. and you've been pre-approved. At that point, you want to start to pay attention to where your balances are and what you're doing. You're going to buy a car at some point. I mean, things that you want to pay attention to, but for the majority of people out there, you're not watching your credit utilization, so to speak, on a monthly basis. I wouldn't say the majority of people are. When it becomes something that you're going to purchase that big thing and credit is going to make up a big portion of the rate, the fee, what's involved in that, 
I think that's when you pay a little bit more attention to it. But with that said, Josh, what are some things you could do? You could pay your balance down, right? But the majority of people out there, I would say, and again, I'm stereotyping and saying, hey, listen, if you've got a, a large credit card balance, you might not have a lot of money in the bank. That might not necessarily be true. But you know, if I say, hey, pay your credit card balance down to less than 30% of the balance or less than 50% of the balance, and people don't have the cash to do that, what are other options people can do to help that that utilization rate improve and in turn improve their credit score? It's a great question. And let's flash back to the last episode, Jeff. We talked about the two biggest factors of your credit score, encompassing 65% of your credit score. 35% is payment history. Your payment history is basically a fact. It hits your report. It is what it is. If something's erroneous, you can get it corrected, but that's hard to fix. Credit utilization is easy to manipulate and we can get your credit score brought up a large amount in a fairly short period of time. You would be surprised, Jeb. I get people all the time who've been saving aggressively to put a bigger down payment. And while they're saving aggressively, they're having to use their credit cards a little bit more. So sometimes it is possible that we say, hey, instead of doing 10% down and having a 685 credit score, we can use 5% of that money, pay your credit cards off, and you got a 780 credit score, and we're going to do 5%. You're going to have a lower rate. You're going to have lower mortgage insurance, all of those benefits. So it's just a, it's a trade-off there. But like you said, some people, if they're relying on their credit cards. That is not an option. So one of the things you can do is transfer balances. A lot of times we'll have a client that we look over and say, there's an open credit card that has a $5,000 limit and it has a zero balance on it. And then we got a card over here that has a $5,000 limit with $4,000 on it. And they'll say, oh, that's my Costco card. I get rewards for it. It's my Amazon card. They give me points. They give me 5% back for my purchases. In the big picture, that's cool. And that might be smart for managing your finances. In the short term, for a mortgage loan and maximizing your credit scores, what we probably want to do is move some over to one of those other accounts. That's an easy one if you have it. If you don't have it, you can reach out to your creditor. Say, same thing. You owe $4,000 on a $5,000 limit card. Reach out and ask them to increase the limit. If they were to say increase it to $10,000, now we're at 40%, we're under 50% utilization. But even if they just raised it to 7,500, we're still under 70% and that alone, once the new limit is reported to the credit bureaus, will have a nice impact on increasing your credit score. Good stuff. So something we didn't mention at the top of the show, if Josh sounds like Kermit the Frog, it's because he didn't get kissed by the princess and is slowly turning into one. Now he's been sick and we had to record this. So you're getting what you get, but it's all good information. So hopefully you guys are following along. So next thing, Josh, let's talk about inquiries. Inquiries are a big thing, right? You talked about when you get your score from the bureaus, if you will, there's typically a couple of things that they report when they give you your score, right? What's affecting your credit score? And looking at a lot of credit reports, my lifetime and my career, one of the things I've seen often that, that affects people's credit score is the number of inquiries reported. So just what is an inquiry and why is that important in, in the big scheme of things? Anytime someone accesses your credit for the purposes of granting you credit, that's going to be a hard inquiry and that will have a negative impact on your credit score. Inquiries get a bad rap because especially for borrowers with higher credit scores, they have a very minimal negative impact, one to three points and they heal fairly quickly. The more important thing to be aware of, I get people all the time, they'll say, well, I had someone pre-approve me last weekend, so I don't want you to pull my credit. 
that, well, that's silly because the CFPB gives you a 45-day window for major purchases, auto loans, mortgages, student loans, that type of stuff. You have a 45-day window. You can have as many inquiries pulled as you want. So let's say me and 14 other lenders all pull your credit on one weekend while you're out considering buying a home. That's treated as a single inquiry. Those inquiries are identified as a mortgage inquiry. So as long as it's a mortgage company pulling and you're within a 45-day window, do not worry about it. Let as many lenders as you feel comfortable talking to pull that, but keep it within, the CFPB says 45 days. I would definitely keep it within 30 days for your own sanity. Figure, figure out who you're going to talk to and have them look at it within a, a two-week window. So let's talk about, Jeb, the types of inquiries that can be really negative for your credit. It's when you go out and could be out of necessity, could be out of just ignorance and inquire for three or four or five credit cards in one weekend. And why would someone do this? The model doesn't know. You may be in dire straits and you're just trying to access money anywhere you can. So you apply for five credit cards, you wanna take cash advances, all of them. You also may have gone out and got a new apartment and you need to furnish it. You have no furniture, you have no TV. You, so you go to Crate and Barrel, you go to Ikea, you go to Pottery Barn, and they all say, we'll give you 20% off. You open all of these cards. Credit card inquiries and multiples, especially if you open new accounts, will have a negative impact. So when you get in that window, when you're thinking of qualifying for a mortgage and buying a house or refinancing, keep new credit cards to a minimum. If you want to open one, no big deal. But Jeff, I don't know what your perspective is on this. The biggest thing that drives me crazy is I see people with perfect payment histories that use seven, eight, 10 credit cards. And I'm like, simplify your life. Pick one or two or three cards that have some sort of reward that you like and keep your balances to those cards. No, I, and I agree with that. I also struggle with the idea that I don't like to have a lot of credit cards personally, like I it just, even though it's available credit or what have you. And so I'll get to the time. For example, I have an American Express, right? And it's, yeah, I pay on that card every year. It's expensive to, to have that card, but I've had that card for 15 years, that particular card. And so by getting rid of it, my, my brain says, that might be a negative. If I close that account, that might be a negative. So therefore I keep that card and continue to pay on it, even though I could probably go with another card that costs less and what have you. So I get it, but I also get the idea of why people do what they do for silly reasons, if nothing else. So having available credit is you also don't want to have no credit and close all your accounts, right? I mean, like, like we mentioned Dave Ramsey a lot and he has a lot of good methods for certain things, but one of those things is like closing your credit account so you can't spend on cards and paying off your balances and cutting them up and then whatever. Yeah, great. That's your idea of credit utilization, but it could set up a problem when you go to, to get a mortgage or, or buy a car or what have you, just because you don't have any credit. You're not using any credit and the bureaus look at that negatively. But Josh, let's talk about the idea of disputing inaccurate information. One of the, one of the last things you can really do to help improve your score, if you will. Should you use a company online to do this, pay somebody a monthly fee to be a part of this? Is this something you can do yourself? I have mixed feelings about this, but I'd love to know your thoughts. If you're talking to a credit repair company and the primary tool they use is disputing things on your credit, things that you know to be accurate, that is, it's a pretty weak tool. What will happen many times is during that dispute period, it, the creditor will either take it off your credit report or they'll mark it as in dispute and it doesn't have the negative impact on your score during the period that they're actually doing their investigation. 
nine times out of 10, they're going to come back on. We use a credit repair company that is one of the tools in their arsenal, and they do have some success with it. There are creditors who are just like, it's easier to remove this negative reporting than it is to do the investigation and get back to the customer. But major credit card companies like Capital One, Chase Bank, B of A, Wells Fargo, they're, they don't want to set that precedent. They're going to go and they're going to do the research and go, no, here it was. You didn't make your payment in 2019, November, probably out of town, whatever the, the thing was. So there are companies that this is basically all they do is just bombard the, the bureaus and the creditors with disputes of accurate information. So you can have some success with it, especially with smaller creditors that don't want to take the time to respond, but that's not going to be a huge strategy for boosting your score. And I wouldn't go to a company that that's the number one thing that they want to talk to you about that they're going to do for you to improve your score. Hey guys, Jeb and I wanted to take a quick break from the show and thank you for listening. Our numbers continue to grow thanks to people like you tuning in every week and liking and subscribing and rating and reviewing on your podcast platform of choice. So we would love to ask a favor. If you can go into Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening and leave us a rating or a review, we would be eternally grateful. Again, thank you for listening and back to the show. And the one thing I'll say is the reason I have mixed emotions is because, yeah, there's companies out there that will help you with this stuff. But I will say that there's nothing that they're doing that you can't do yourself. Again, that's like anything, right? I could paint my house, but it's probably better if I hire a professional to do it. I would say same thing with that. But some of these things I've had success in the past with clients. This has been years ago with a letter, sending it in and having things removed and without them having to pay. So it changes and some of these companies are worth their weight in gold others are not so just make sure if you're working with one of these companies you're working with somebody that's reputable you know somebody that's used them there's a referral almost because at the same time there's a lot of companies out there just taking money making claims and not really doing much about it but what about we're going to talk about some collections and some charge-offs and some things that are changing in that world with regards to your credit josh but what about experian experian has something called i think experian boost that's supposed to help your credit score in fact i think i saw a commercial yesterday the day before about experian boost does it work is it legit what are your thoughts it, so it absolutely works but it's not a magic cure-all let's look at it from this perspective what they do is they have you authorize access to your bank accounts where you're paying things like utilities cell phones and what it does is they then add it into your experience file and if you don't have good depth of credit what that will do is boost your score. Just like they say, Experian boost. Here's the issue. On the mortgage side, we're gonna pull all three bureaus. We're gonna use the middle of your three scores. So let's say Experian is already your high score. Doesn't really help us that you boost it by 20, 30, 50 points. If it's your median score, if it's the middle and that's the effective one we're gonna use, that could be very helpful that we get it up 20 or 30 points. If it's the low and even after boost, it's still the low, also gonna have no impact. The big thing that I would say is some of the jumbo lenders, some of the non-QM lenders, they don't like this. They feel like you're manipulating the credit score and they'll make you remove boost. It's not common. So I don't think it's a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It's also not a bad thing. If you want to do it and it helps you get your score higher and it makes you feel better, and it may help you with store cards. It may help you with an auto. By all means, go ahead and do it, but don't think it's magic. Got it. So now I want to talk about collection accounts, medical accounts, charge-offs, that sort of thing. You know, paying them off, does that actually help? We talked about a new model coming in. Let's talk about just the whole thing here with charge-offs and collection accounts. Let's start, maybe talk about the difference between the two, about some of these ways that, that things are changing. 
A collection means that a creditor has given up on you making your payments. You're at least 90 days behind, probably more like 180 days behind. And some of them have in-house collection departments. They report that they're going to close the account, send it to collections. It could be internal collections. It could be a collection agency. And the collection agency is either doing it on retainer and they split what they collect or they're buying the account for pennies on the dollar and they get to keep what they collect. Either way, it's a bad thing. It's something that's going to hit your score fairly negatively. The size of it will also dictate the magnitude of the impact. And what is a charge off from there? After a while, the collection agency or the internal collection department will want to write that off. They'll just write it off as a bad debt, and that means they've charged it off. They're no longer trying to collect it. So on the mortgage side, a mortgage lender looks at a charge-off as better because no one's coming and trying to get that from you or collect that from you. On the other side, a collection, they're going to say, for the most part, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, DU, the automated underwriting engine, is going to look at it and it's going to say, we see the collections, we're okay with it. It's already in the credit score. It's already impacting your pricing, your mortgage insurance, all that. Or it may come back and say, we don't like that. You need to pay these things off. It's pretty rare that I see them being asked to be paid off by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's automated underwriting system. It's more often that you just won't get the loan approved. FHA looks at it a little bit differently. Collections $2,000 or less do not need to be paid off and don't need to be considered. So one credit, one, one collection for $1,800, no problem. Two collections for $900 totaling $1,800, no problem. Three collections for $900 totaling $2,700. Now we have the total. We either have to pay them off or we have to hit you with 5% of the total balance as a monthly payment. And still, it's going to go through FHA's total scorecard, and it's going to have to be okay with your credit. The last one is VA. VA is going to look at it more case by case. If their automated underwriting engine comes back and says it's okay, primarily what they're looking to see is that the veteran does not have a history of not paying their bills. So it can be a problem, not a guarantee. So most of these are all case by case. Collections, charge-offs, can't really say one is any better than the other. They both have negative impacts on your score. Charge-offs tend to be older. So for what it's worth, you want to avoid these as much as possible because they will have a fairly large negative impact on your scores. Now let's talk about medical collections. I think this is probably one of the bigger things that I've seen personally hit people's credit and have a negative effect. So there's some changes with regards to medical collections, how they're going to be reported, the amounts, all of that good stuff. So maybe just talk about how medical collections affect you now and what we're going to see as these changes take place. So the changes that have already been implemented, and let's first talk about what's different about a medical collection. If you've ever had a medical procedure, let's say you get in a car accident and you go to the emergency room and you do a week in the hospital, you could have had 20 different providers work on you and bill you and the billing should have gone to insurance, insurance pays, doesn't pay, you don't know. So it's very easy in those situations for someone with an otherwise perfect credit record to have something go to collections that's a medical bill. So creditors in the mortgage space have always looked at those a little differently than not paying a credit card or having a car repossessed. They're just different. So now that's been formalized by the government. We've had a couple of changes already implemented and we have another one coming in June of 2023. The biggest one is unpaid medical collections can't be reported for 12 months. So you don't have the situation where you're not even aware of an account and then boom, it shows up as a collection when you go to have me pull your credit report to get pre-approved for a mortgage. The better one is that paid medical collections are no longer 
allowed to be reported. We used to, and we'll talk about this a little bit, should you pay off your collections and charge-offs or leave them be, it used to be, we would say, it's a medical collection. Medical collection agencies are very good about a pay for deletion. You pay it, they'll give you a deletion letter and make it go away. Now that's just the law of the land. If you pay a medical collection, it's going to take a period of time, but it's going to come off of your credit. So it can't be reported for 12 months. Once you pay it, it will come off your credit and won't linger there for seven years like a standard collection account. The one that we're not going to have until June of 2023, any medical collection under $500 can't be reported. You'd be surprised. We see little things like a $20 copay not paid and it ends up being a collection and dinging someone 50 points who has an otherwise perfect credit history. So after June of 2023, medical collections under 500 won't be allowed to be reported. Okay. And I think the question that a lot of people are asking is, is does paying these things off when they do report on your credit actually improve your score? In the short run, they will generally have a negative impact, especially with a charge-off. So a charge-off, let's say three years ago, a creditor stopped trying to collect. They sent it to a charge-off status. So the date of last activity on that would be three years ago. If you go and pay it off now, in the long run, that's going to be better for your credit score. But in the short run, the date of last activity makes it look like we have this negative credit event here very recently. So if you have collections or you have charge-offs, like we just talked about, the type of loan you get is going to dictate whether they need to be paid off, whether you can be approved with them as they sit. For the long haul, you probably do want to pay them off, but for the short run, Talk to your mortgage professional and go through the process of a full automated approval before you decide what to do, unless you know that you have a creditor agreeing to a pay for deletion. Any creditor that says, yes, we will delete this if you pay us and you want to do it, go ahead and do that. What I will say is don't get don't get tricked into paying something without something in writing. Have them fax or email you a letter that says we are agreeing to accept X dollars as payment in full and we'll delete this from all three credit bureaus upon receipt of payment good through this date. Then you follow through, pay it off by that date. And if they don't give you the deletion letter, you have something that says that they had agreed to deletion based off of you paying. Good stuff. And Josh, you mentioned something that there, you mentioned working with your mortgage professional. If you guys are listening to this, you don't have a mortgage professional, maybe you're starting the process, you're working with somebody, don't trust them. There's a link in the description of this podcast that'll get you to somebody that Josh and I know, like, and trust that can guide you through that and, and make sense of the situation and really help explain all of this and, and walk you through it. So be sure to check that out. Now, Josh, what about rescoring? You've talked about doing some of these things and improving your score. When I was doing loans, what, eight years ago at this point, nine years ago was the last loan I think I did. There was something called a rapid rescore. Is that still around? Do you still do them? Do they make sense? A rapid rescore is a very important tool. All of the things that we just talked about, a pay for deletion on a charge off, paying down a credit card, paying off a credit card. We could be in a situation where you have to wait 30 days for that billing cycle to go through. I've seen a paid collection not get reported for 90 days, 120 days. They're not in a rush to get that corrected. What a rapid rescore allows us to do is to go to each of the bureaus, provide documentation of what needs to be corrected. Hey, the balance is now lower. This account is paid off. This collection, this charge off is paid off. It has to have the account number, has to have your name, has to have a phone number at the creditor where it can be called and verified. So what happens is since this is technically incorrect information being corrected in your credit file. You're not allowed to pay for it. So we, as the mortgage professional, end up paying for it. What does it cost? It's about $40 per trade line 
per bureau. So let's say we have five cards that you have maxed and you have money sitting in the bank. You need to pay them down and all three of your scores are impacted negatively. We've got 15 lines of credit uh, across all of those bureaus and it's 40 bucks pop, $600 and you can't be charged for it. And that may sound crazy, but I was just in a room with a bunch of loan officers and we were talking about credit and someone asked, what was the most you've ever paid for a rescore? One of the girls in the room had paid $1,400 of rescores for a borrower. And the best part about that, and I used best in a very loose term there, the borrower took their new score, went back to another lender and closed the loan. She never got the $1,400 back. So if you have someone that's being very helpful and working with you on a rapid rescore and paying that stuff for you, don't be a jerk and go somewhere else and get your loan. Josh, your voice sounds like it's teetering out here. There's something that we have in our notes here that I actually don't even know what it is. And we're going to, I'm going to learn with the listeners out here when we talk opt out pre-screen. What is an opt out pre-screen when it comes to credit? So opt out pre-screen is, you've probably seen these pre-screened offers of credit. Something shows up in your mailbox that says, hey, here I'm offering you a credit, a credit card. That's essentially a pre-authorized credit card or auto loan or mortgage. You'll see if you apply for a mortgage with us, what happens is there are companies that are doing soft pulls on you all the time. So a soft pull where no real inquiry, they're just analyzing credit on people that they know. And if it meets their criteria, they can make you a firm offer of credit. So there is an old wives tale out there that if you use opt-out pre-screen, just Google opt-out pre-screen, you can opt out of that where no one can send you pre-selected offers of credit. There was a belief that that would boost your score three to five points from everything that I've read that is not true, but there's nothing bad about that. It'll keep you from getting trigger leads. If you apply for a mortgage, your phone's not gonna ring with 50 different lenders. It's gonna keep you from getting all those credit card offers showing up in your inbox. So not a bad thing to do, but it's not gonna boost your credit score. Gonna do it. I like, I feel important when they send me those in the mail. Say I'm approved for a million dollars. I'm like, yes. And then I don't do anything with it. But hey, it feels good. Now, in all reality, so we talked about how to boost your credit score if you actually have credit. But what is the case that if you don't have a credit score, I'm looking to apply for a mortgage or I'm a foreign national, whatever it is, I've come here and I've been told not to get credit and just I don't have any. So what can I do if I'm in that situation to put myself in a position to be able to have credit and turn by a house? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac don't have a requirement that you have a credit score. Nearly every investor that I'm aware of requires a credit score. We've talked about Dave Ramsey a lot in this episode. Dave says, it's not worth it. You're better off not using credit and not having a score. I have a lender that will do these. Any lender that does them is going to charge a premium. You want to have a credit score. We've talked about using credit minimally to while maximizing that credit score. If you do not have a score, it is much better to attempt to get a score in a relatively brief period of time than to get a loan without a score. So there's a couple of ways, Jeb, that we can do that. Authorized user accounts. If you have a spouse, a parent, they can add you as an authorized user on a card that has a longer payment history. This will work for most loan programs. It won't work for all programs. Some are going to look at, and when I say some, primarily jumbo loans, which if you don't have a credit score, you're probably not looking for a jumbo loan. But jumbo lenders are going to look at that. And if you only have authorized user accounts, they're going to go, well, we don't really have a credit history here. 
So the other thing that we want to do in that situation is get you secured credit cards. So with a secured credit card, they're not really loaning you money. You're putting money in an account with them, and that is your credit line. You put $300 on deposit, and you can charge up to $300 a month and pay it off like a normal credit card. But there are companies that specialize in this. They're not the best credit cards. They may be the most expensive, but rather than having a monthly billing cycle, they report weekly. So if you get that card and it opens today and you go pay your cell phone bill next week, they're going to report a history there. So it's building a history more quickly. So depending on whether you have no history in your credit file or you have some and you haven't used it recently, the authorized user, the secured cards can help you build a score rather quickly. And you are much better off having a score than trying to go to one of the lenders that will make a mortgage loan to you without a credit score. Good stuff. So a lot of information provided between two episodes, and I should have mentioned this earlier. If you didn't hear episode one, I would go back and listen to that too, providing a lot of information on credit to start with. And then we talked about how to improve the score. So kind of need both shows in order to maximize credit. And ultimately this is when we're talking about this because credit is such an important piece of buying a home and effectively getting a better interest rate and a lower monthly payment. So be, to sh be sure to check that out. And while you're doing it, if you found any value today, rate us, review us on whatever podcast platform you listen to. And be sure to tune in next week where we talk about how to actually get a mortgage if you're buying a home. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.